Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 97 of the Double Density Podcast with your hosts, Brian Angelo. Double Density, your home to tech tales and paranormal primers. Now, first things first, Angelo, you have you put some notes in the show notes to kick things off that make no sense to me. So I'm going to uh, give the floor to you for the first portion of this evening. Well, I'm just, first of all, I'd like to thank you for saying greetings, cyberspace, and not the same garbage you said last week. I feel That's like you're great. a very big creature of habit. Like you, you don't like it when things are like even slightly like moved at all. It really threw me off. I'm very happy to be back to greeting cyberspace, and uh, I'd like to say thanks. Buffalo. What about like hey tech freaks and uh, paranormal fools? No, never again. Okay. I'd like to say uh, thanks, Buffalo. It's so confusing. What does this even mean? Do you remember I was texting you, and instead of I wanted to say thanks, buddy, as we all say in Canada, and uh, <laughs> stop revealing our of- Canadian secrets. And instead of Buddy, it autocorrected to Buffalo. So uh, from now on, I'm just going to be calling you Buffalo. Do you often type the word Buffalo, though? I don't know why I've never typed the word Buffalo. Yeah, I don't know either. So uh, good luck with that. Yeah, pretty pretty great. Thanks. I actually noticed, I don't know if this is happening to you. I find the uh, keyboard on iOS is uh, forgetting to register my spaces. Yeah, I've had that a lot. Really? Okay, so it's yeah. not just me. No. Uh, I, I talked about this with uh, Alex, our friend from RGBA, and he said he's had the same issues since a recent update. So I don't know what uh, they're doing wrong. Maybe maybe Apple's having uh, keyboard troubles also on their iOS devices too now. Uh, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. He, uh, he so suggested I- using some compressed air underneath the space bar on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that or start um, uh, pairing a uh, Bluetooth, like a full keyboard, like a wireless keyboard to your, your phone. Whip that out on the train whenever I need to. Uh, Why not, right? Text. Uh, I, I kind of realized uh, this week that we're doing something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, my friend. Uh, in preparation for your wedding in a few months, I guess? It was sort of, but now that I've, I've realized this as we're talking about these topics, I'm, uh, I'm realizing that there's a pattern here. So the first story I want to talk about this week is something very interesting from the CBC archives. Um, so in the late 1970s, a, uh, a man named David Brough uh, started a chain of about 30 pirate TV stations in northern Ontario, uh, all without uh, like CRTC, which is like the FCC uh, approval. Um, and so they've posted a... Uh, a link on their website and they've chopped up the video um, into two minute segments. But basically this guy was going around and from Toronto, he would tape um, CTV, CBC and global um, and uh, offer up 10 hour bits of tape to these different uh, stations, uh, mostly located in Northern Ontario because they obviously didn't have a lot of TV access. And this is, was literally the only game in town. So now this happens in a totally different way. Uh, It kind of happens with, People putting stuff on YouTube. Do you ever try to look for something on YouTube? Like, or let's say you just tried to watch like some video, right? Like you look up a movie and hey, it's on YouTube for some reason, but like the image is reversed. Or, or my favorite like, is it's within another image, like it's a, like within a still image. Yeah. So they do that to get around the bots that patrol uh, YouTube and uh, they protect us from this content, but they force flat earthers down our throat. That is apparently not going to be a thing anymore going forward. We will see about that. But yeah, this is kind of really cool and an interesting kind of story about how, uh, you know, media was disseminated in the late 70s. So in one of these towns, literally called Wawa, so Wawa, Ontario, they were running their own uh, TV bingo game once a week in order to be able to pay uh, for the system uh, as well as be able to pay for the station manager's salary. I love the idea of somebody just deciding on his own to turn something 
into a TV station by kind of stealing from other ones. Sort of like you kind of see that if you look at the article, like he even like cut out clips from like a TV guide or something. Yeah. So he was mailing off when he was mailing or sending off because he was the idea was that all these tapes were supposed to be passed around the um, the 30 stations. And so when he would uh, bundle these together, he would go to the TV guide and snip out what was on each uh, reel. It's pretty uh, it's pretty industrious of him to kind of do this, but he wasn't really getting paid for this. It was just more to get people content, sort yeah, of exactly. like what some people do with uh, uh, certain places on the internet where you can find certain things that you might not be able to get elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. Uh, something interesting to note is that in a lot of these towns, he was asking people to pay five bucks per month for the uh, pleasure of enjoying TV. But of course, because this was antenna TV, uh, no one was like forced to pay. Um, so that kind of led to uh, an interesting kind of problem of people consuming uh, you know, different kinds of media, uh, specifically TV in this case, without actually paying for it, which is something that uh, happens in 2019 too. It's it's a, it's an early form of the subscription model that everybody's moving to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, moving from something old to something new, I linked you to a Verge article this week all about how uh, we live in 2019 and our shoes are failing us. I, I love the idea of a shoe getting bricked. Yeah, yeah. So basically, Nike has these adaptive BBs that sell for three hundred fifty dollars American, and uh, they had a firmware update, and uh, it bricked their shoes. So basically, without the Android or iOS app, you can't actually uh, get your shoelaces tied. They're like a, an interesting version of what we saw in Back to the Future, if I'm not mistaken, right? Back I, to the Future uh, Two. Oh, sorry, yeah, Back to the Future Two, not in Back to the Future, because that would be shoes from the fifties. And I find it kind of funny now. People, uh, the people are raving about these shoes, though. They were all over my Twitter feed last week, and or a couple of weeks ago at this point. And the thing is, is that the iOS app worked fine, but the Android app, they didn't do a good enough job. But instead of just failing and not updating, it just completely ruined the shoes. And from what I'm understanding, there's no way back from it. So it's a quote from the Verge article. For the time being, the shoes can sometimes be fixed with a hard reset, which involves <laughs> holding down the sneakers as two buttons. Uh, what a time to be alive, Angelo. I, I don't know what to say. I don't want to sound like an old man and say, in my day, we used Velcro. But like, if your shoes can't, like, let's say this is your only pair of shoes, how do you leave the house? You t- do you duct tape your shoes together? I, I understand that. But trust me, anybody who owns these shoes, this is not their only pair of shoes. No, but the idea of like the trickle down tech, right? So eventually we'll all have uh, laces that tie themselves, uh, leading to like, you know, a widespread adoption. And then suddenly uh, we're uh, stuck in the house because we can't do anything. Or you get stuck in the rain with these things. Are they waterproof? I wonder. I would hope so. Just imagine that. Your shoes malfunction have started to sizzle. <laughs> they, oh, I don't my. think they'd be doing very well in the weather we've had here lately. So No, exactly. Uh, something old, something new, something borrowed we're going to be talking about. Facebook. Oh, Facebook. Uh, so it's been uh, about a month and a bit for me and about two months for you, I believe, right? Yeah. And, and what is Facebook borrowing now? So the Wall Street Journal is reporting that they're, bo- like, they're borrowing a ton of information from other apps um, that we uh, are maybe not sure that they're allowed or not necessarily allowed, but like they haven't been able to facilitate properly. Again, now Facebook, like it's been with their apps, obviously, but now if you're signing into other apps with Facebook you're pretty much giving Facebook carte blanche to do whatever they want with your data. And it's- some, of the, some of the apps include Realtor.com, Instant Heart Rate, and uh, more. And so basically in installing these apps, Facebook is grabbing that info. There aren't, they aren't these apps that are like illegitimate on, on the App Store or anything. These are apps that are well-known 
and actually on the app store for a reason and not some sort of way to like take your money or anything like that. These are real legitimate apps and Facebook because of their ever reaching powers are able to kind of snag your data even if you don't have Facebook on your phone. Yes. Uh, which is a bit of a problem. Uh, you know, uh, I think that's also an understatement. I don't know if you saw this last week, but BuzzFeed News was reporting that... Uh, so Mark Zuckerberg promised the Clear History tool last year, and now uh, last week, uh, Ryan Mack of BuzzFeed News did a follow-up on it. And now, apparently, uh, breaking as of uh, this evening, Facebook is planning on launching Clear History uh, later this year. Later this year. Now, what what does this Clear History entail? So it's the idea that you're supposed to be able to wipe your uh, cookies and history, and from there, the, Facebook isn't supposed to be reporting on what you're doing. I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. I, I'm still wondering if me deleting my Facebook account actually deleted anything from uh, your it, servers. It, it has not. I can, I can almost, I mean, this is conjecture, but I can almost guarantee. Double Density presents the sounds of your youth. Do you have any good coleslaw recipes? I do not, but if you uh, want to troll through our inbox, Angelo, you can certainly find one. We get the weirdest spam through our contact form. We certainly do. It's a different type of spam that you wouldn't normally get through email. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I think it's kind of fun. Except it took you until now to notice that. So Yeah, I don't... Again, I've mentioned this before, but you're like the VP of outreach on our podcast. So like you look at the mailing addresses. I I just show up and talk and then edit the show, which so I'm not if, even doing this week. <laughs> for anyone interested, uh, let us know. We'll hit you up with some uh, classic grade A coleslaw recipes. Yeah, really great. Good link. I'm sure it's not stealing our data one way or another. <laughs> not in the least. Next up, I know last week that we talked about uh, the foldable phone, right? Samsung's and uh, Xiaomi's foldable phone. Uh, everyone in the Apple ecosphere is now complaining about, oh, why doesn't Apple have a, a foldable phone? Well, because Apple's always a couple of years behind on this type of stuff for good reason. They They kind of waited out to see what and where the market is trending to. Uh, they sometimes wait a little too long, like it was with the bigger phones, but they're usually pretty good about this. Now, I, I had mentioned to you, oh, I want to talk about foldable phones today, and uh, you don't seem interested at all one way or the other in this. I do not care, my friend. It uh, is not a full phone. It is not a full tablet. Why should I care about any of this? Okay, so here's what... I haven't heard this anywhere else. I'm sure people are thinking it, but... I don't know if Apple's going to come out of this the way Samsung and Hawaii are handling it, where it's it's a phone and then you fold it open. Xiaomi not Hawaii. Well, I guess Hawaii has one coming out too, right? Isn't it Hawaii? Or well, Xiaomi, Xiaomi has yeah. one right now, but I think Hawaii also has one in the pipeline. Yeah, how, Hawaii has the, like, the really nice one is what I'm understanding, it, but it's also $2,800. Yeah. It, the price is a little prohibitive. Let's put it this way. like You can buy an iPad and an iPhone for less than that. You know, like Yeah, together. Now, the thing I'm wondering is what if... Apple decides to make like an iPhone, like a normal size phone, but the screen folds on itself. So like you don't need a case anymore. It's just sort of like the Razer was, but when you flip it open, it's an actual smartphone. I just, I don't even, uh, I don't care either way. <laughs> you just want a new iPhone SE is what you want. Yeah, I want an SE too. That's all I really want. And uh, maybe they'll announce one in a few weeks, Brian. Go on. 
they're gonna there's a rumor out there that Apple's gonna have an event in uh at the end of March and maybe they'll announce a new uh a new smartphone, a new iPhone SE. A new smartphone, that's so stupid. <laughs> Maybe they'll announce a new uh, iPhone SE there. The rumor is, though, that they're going to be announcing services and their subscription stuff. So maybe the movie thing. Um, News is something. Apparently, the news app is finally coming to Canada. And there's also the rumored hardware. Have you heard about this uh, new hardware they've been talking about? No, hit me with it. So there's a few things. Uh, The one that's like really standing out to me is like a new size MacBook Pro. And it's like a 16.5 inch macbook pro remember the 17 inch book yes did you ever use it did you ever see no. one in person i uh it was enormous have i i think i might have once yes yes uh maybe in public spaces and cafes and things yes it was really really big but there, there's a few things like new airpods and stuff like that i don't think any of this will be announced on the 25th of march if they do have an event i think this will be one of those smaller events like they've had in the past with the education stuff so like new ipads uh the lower end ones I'm hoping for your sake, a lower-end iPhone, because uh, you seem pretty ho-hum about anything Apple's come out with lately. I have. I mean, like, it's just minor improvements. I think we've talked about how uh, there's no more pivoting to do, I guess, uh, in terms of, like, smartphones at this stage. Yeah, even, like, uh, these foldable things. I I think it's, like, sort of half-baked at this point. There's really nothing. It's cool-looking, Yeah, but uh, I'm like you... I want a phone that is like an R2-D2 type of unit that follows me around and shows me holographic images of people in distress. Brian Hasty, you're my only hope. Exactly. Um, kind of adjacent to this, have you heard about the Energizer PowerMax P18K Pop? <laughs> I saw pictures of this thing today. This massive battery with a phone attached to it. Yeah, that's all it is, right? It's a battery with a phone. Yes, it is massive. And... Uh, uh, so Energizer uh, is branded on this one. Uh, kind of interesting. I don't know. So it's uh, France's Avenir Telecom uh, has licensed the Energizer brand for this one. And uh, there's a Verge article linked to in the show notes. And it is a, a massive brick, my friend. And uh, we're not quite sure how much it's going to be uh, on sale for. That will be announced later uh, this year, presumably in the summer. But if you ever uh, would desire a gigantic uh, phone slash battery combo that'll never die then uh that's it right here and and i am like go look at this in the show notes because brian's not kidding it is a giant phone it's it's literally a brick like picture those power packs of batteries you carry with you like if you want to have extra juice well it's that but with a phone screen so Avenir is promising a week's worth of use in between recharges or 48 full hours of video playback are you ever that far away from a charger that you need to do that? I don't know. Sometimes you want to throw yourself a little film festival out in the woods. I guess. I mean, usually you go out there <laughs> to kind of forget about uh, technology. I'm, I'm really going to be off the grid uh, next week, Brian. Like completely right. off the grid. So uh, two things. Uh, big thanks to TJ last weekend for showing up uh, on our show. And then next week I have a very special guest, very near and dear to my own heart, who uh, I will be exploring a bunch of like uh, different things with. And I'm very excited about that. Angela, you only get to hear the episode when you're on your way back home, right? Pretty much. I won't get to hear on the way. I have no internet where I'm going. I'm going to Cuba. There's no, there's not a lot of internet there. Uh, I'm on a resort, so it's not like I'm in like the jungles or anything, but uh, I the, the the internet's not excellent over there, and I'm I'm kind of going to take advantage of it by not being connected at all to anything. And so, just, have you packed your dad hat yet? 
I have one, I guess. I'll, I'll probably be wearing that from time to time because the sun is very hot there and I don't want to get sunburned. But uh, yeah, there's going to be no real internet. The last time I went was in 2015 and um, I So wait, was you're saying connected. I get peace from you for like a week? This is amazing. No long text tirade from me. <sighs> this is going to be great, you guys. I'm, I'm kind of excited now, actually. But when I get back, I'll have a Business lot to say. Usual. Business as usual, yeah, probably. And with that, let us wrap up the tech section of episode 97. Head over to the paranormal side of things. How does that sound? Yeah, that was a fun loosey-goosey tech section. Let's see what happens in the paranormal. What could space be? What could it be made of? What the heck is all those lights out there? Is it just a black curtain with holes in it? I don't know. I'm trying to find out. Double density. Welcome back to Double Density. As always, we are switching gears from tech to the paranormal. So first things first, Angela, before I forget, we have our first fully-fledged sponsor. That is reportyoursighting.com. The Brent Collective folks have decided to use us as a vehicle uh, for them to sort of uh, spread their services. So right now, I am uh, being told they're still in the data collection phase. But the idea behind this is that they want to create an immersive database of uh, UFO and UAP sightings eventually. Um, so yeah, this is kind of cool. Well, I went to the site. I like the simplicity of it. There's a contact sheet where you can kind of explain what your sighting was. And I'm assuming they'll collect all that information and, and create their database, which is growing uh, all the time from what I've understood. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so keep your eyes peeled and we'll be uh, shutting them out over the next couple of weeks, of course. So that is reportyoursighting.com. And, and who's behind this again, Brian? So it's a number of folks I've been in contact with. They call themselves the Brandt Collective. It's no one person, and uh, they don't necessarily want to be known publicly yet. Um, so yeah, uh, we'll see as time unfolds. And no one in black suits has visited you yet, right? <laughs> no, uh, not at all. Not that I'm aware of, at least. Um, though after uh, what, what we'll cover here, this might be a different story. Yeah, I, I always find uh, something with the word collective at the end is a little ominous, but I'm hoping I'm not insulting our sponsors. Yeah, no, I uh, I don't think that's the case. Once again, reportyoursighting.com. With that out of the way, Angelo, let us get to what I believe to be the greatest Canadian UFO hoax of all time. August 18th, 1991. The scene, the quiet rural town of Carp, Ontario, Canada, located 33 kilometers southwest of downtown Ottawa, the nation's capital. Just after 10 p.m., a witness reports seeing a brightly lit craft land in her field and stay mobile, before blinking off moments later as if a light switch were flipped off. Objects resembling flares are firing off to the left near where the craft lands, illuminating the area in a sea of multicolored lights of various origins. A few minutes later, she reports hearing low-flying helicopters searching the area. The craft, reportedly ovoid in shape, much like the classic UFO design, has a pulsating vertical light at the top of its structure. The witness's story is subsequently seemingly corroborated. An extraordinary videotape emerges from an anonymous source known only as Guardian. The designation of Guardian is due to the fact that the label on the videotape disseminated has the word Guardian on it and a thumbprint on the left-hand side. This 32-minute videotape is sent to various UFO researchers all over North America. They report that the videotape is the fourth package they begin receiving in October of 1991. UFO researcher Bob Exler, who we'll get into later, receives his copy in February of 1992. We're getting into the contents, the subsequent investigation, and more in a bit. Angelo, we're talking about the Carp Guardian case here. I like this case. It kind of, I kind of have it near and dear to my heart because we bonded about the paranormal over this case once 
when we were working together and we watched it. We watched the old Unsolved Mysteries episode on YouTube in my office. Do you remember this? Yeah, of course I do. And I I watched the Unsolved Mysteries episode again. And I actually didn't realize they did this, but I watched both the Robert Stack I watched both the Robert Stack one and the Dennis Farina one because they kind of remade it with a lot of the similar footage. And uh, the thing we like to joke about this Unsolved Mysteries episode, they use the actual person in the reenactment. Well, so as much as possible, the classic Robert Stack episodes, yeah, tend to have these people sort of reenact whatever situation they're in. So, uh, for instance, in this case, the woman who reported the 1991 sighting, Diane Labanek, is in there. Uh, Bob Exler's in there. Uh, Graham Lightfoot's in there. So all of these different people who have things um, and are actively involved in the story are actually uh, in the episode themselves. But we'll get into some of the particulars about that um, in a bit. So something that's really interesting to note, yeah, as you are saying, is that there are two different um, versions of this. There's the Robert Stack version and the Dennis Farina version. Yeah, and a lot of the voiceover is similar. But I noticed in the Robert Stack one, they mention that she knew Graham Lightfoot from her 1989 sighting. So uh, Diana Labanek had a, another sighting previously, and they'd called in, um, I keep wanting to say Gordon Lightfoot. Graham. They called in Graham Lightfoot to uh, come in because he worked with like a, an equivalent of MUFON in, uh, in near Ottawa. So yeah, so my next thing that I want to talk about is the 1989 sighting. So November 4th, 1989, just after 8 p.m., um, uh, Diane Lamanek reports a kind of similar uh, sighting. So I'm going to quote directly from a 1994 MUFON Canada newsletter for the next paragraph about what was happening, because you are right. Um, so MUFON's like sister uh, organization, uh, KUFORN, the Canadian UFO Research Network, uh, gets involved. So Tom Theophano, Theophanos uh, receives a package from someone calling themselves Guardian in uh, later 1989 and has no return address. Quote, the package contained a story about a UFO crash that supposedly happened close to Carlton Place, which is about a half hour drive from Ottawa, Tom said. There was also a photocopied picture of an alien. For the most part, we thought it was a joke. But Kufor director Harry Tokars decided to call Arthur Bray, a well-respected UFO author and researcher who lives in Ottawa, and ask him if he had someone in the Carlton area who would check out the story for us. As luck would have it, Arthur knew a fellow who was fascinated by the field of ufology in Graham Lightfoot. It's interesting that she had a couple of sightings to me. Yeah. yeah. I, I always find that fascinating, especially she came out as saying as she wasn't interested in UFOs when she had the 1991 sighting, but she had previously had a sighting. There's a lot of... The thing is, this case is pretty old, right, at this point? Yeah. Uh, and things gets things get muddled, so I'm not quite sure what to believe. Uh, so 1985, Lightfoot uses the info given to my brain in order to track down the area described in these documents that Guardian has sent out. So he kind of sends out these like vague um, sorts of directions about uh, where this UFO is landed. So he talks to a number of witnesses in the area who on kind of like a high level substantiate the notion of like something happening on November 4th, 1989. One witness reports a bright light shining through their window. Uh, one perhaps remembers hearing a helicopter. Other folks mention the, uh, a, a number of animals uh, being disturbed and yowling in the dark. And so then we come to Diane Labanek. So Labanek has like by far the most complete recounting of what she's seen on that fateful night. She claims to have seen several helicopters circling the region earlier in the evening before spotting a bright light passing overhead towards the swamp uh, on her property at about 8 p.m. So guess what, Angela? Was it swamp gas? Uh, no, it gets even better. I've actually managed to track down um, <laughs> excerpts of some of the Guardian documents from 1989. Um, so I'm going to read them to you with some conjecture and some questions for you. Okay, I can't wait to hear these because I, this I have not seen. You had not found them in time to show me. 
So from the document, Canadian and American security agencies are engaged in a conspiracy of silence to withhold the world the alien vessel seized in the swamps of Corkery Road Carp in 1989. UFO sightings in the Ontario region had intensified in the 1980s, specifically around nuclear power generating stations. On November 4th, 1989, at 2100 hours, Canadian Defense Department radars picked up a globe-shaped object traveling at phenomenal speed over Carp, Ontario. The UFO abruptly stopped and dropped like a stone. So a few things there, Angelo, to note. There are actually no nuclear power plants around the Ottawa area. They're amassed around the outer regions of the greater Toronto area, such as in Owen Sound, uh, which is like, what, like four and a half hours away. So I've looked up the history of nuclear reactors in Ontario, and there's none ever located in the area. Uh, secondly, <laughs> the idea of these radars picking things up has never been officially substantiated. So it's kind of been like picked out into the ether and like dropped out of nowhere. So I guess when these statements came out, though, wasn't readily easily for readily easy for somebody to check if there were nuclear power stations around. Uh, the thing is, most of uh, this part of Canada, if not most of Canada, uses hydroelectric power. Yeah, mostly. There's a, there's a bunch of hydro, uh, but nuclear actually in Ontario is the biggest source uh, in terms of number of units produced. But yeah, there are more hydro projects in Ontario. Okay. and But near Ottawa, there's no... It's all hydro. Yeah. so Pretty much, yeah. But when this was written, they figured nobody's going to really know this. And so this obviously points to it not being a well-informed opinion. Oh, my friend, just wait. This is just the beginning of uh, our little tale here. So to continue, Canadian and American security agencies were immediately notified of the landing. Monitoring satellites traced the movement of the aliens to a triangular area off Almonte and Corkery Roads. The ship has landed in Deep Swamp near Corkery Road. Two AH-64 Apaches and a UH-60 Blackhawk headed for the area the following night. The helicopters carried full weapon loads. They are part of a covert American unit that specializes in the recovery of alien craft. So, Angelo, how does it take a full, like, 24 hours, full night for helicopters to make their way to the area? What were they waiting for, like, the cover of night? Did they not worry about that the craft would take off during daylight hours? That would mean that the UFO would be in plain sight to everyone, including Diane Lamnick, who claimed to have seen something on November 4th, like, for an entire day. Wouldn't you have wanted to, like, go check the field? You know, and something important to note, according to the RCMP, or the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Report, um, her husband claimed to be on a milk run both during the 1989 and 1991 cases. What is, like, a 10 p.m. milk run? Does that seem, like, odd to you? He likes his cereal, I guess. I don't understand why he's always missing when these things happen. Now, uh, until I read further in the information you gave me, I kind of thought he might have been Guardian. So, uh, there are a number of suspects that we'll get into, sort of, like, in the conclusion of this. Um, but perhaps you may not be all that wrong. So, I'm going to continue reading because it gets intense here, Angelo. Oh, boy. Flying low over Ontario pine trees, the Apache attack chopper soon spotted a glowing blue 20-meter in diameter-shaped sphere. As targeting lasers locked on, both gunships unleashed their full weapon loads of eight missiles each. All 16 were exploded in proximity bursts 10 meters downwind from the ship. The missiles were carrying Vexon, a deadly neuroactive gas which kills on contact. Exposed to air, the gas breaks down quickly into inert components. Immediately after having completed their mission, the gunships turned around and headed back across the border. Now the Black Hawk landed as men exploded from its open doors. In seconds, the six-man strike team had entered the UFO through a seven-meter hatchless oval portal. No resistance was encountered. At the control, three dead crewmen were found. Now, Angela, this sounds way more elaborate than SEAL Team 6 and Bin Laden. So, okay, wait. Now, these, th- these are American soldiers uh, crossing into Canadian airspace to do this? Yes. Okay. Using chemical weapons. 16 missiles, my friend. 
of chemical weapons, which, uh, based on some treaties we have, we're not supposed to be using, especially on like the soil of like one of your allies uh, yes. against yeah, aliens. But, but when uh, it so, comes to aliens, dude, it's all off. Yeah, it's all off. We I saw Independence Day. They use nukes, and uh, <laughs> so this is mind blowing because they managed to keep this quiet. Yes, uh, presumably. So I'm going to continue as to what happens afterwards. Are you okay with that? Yes, I can't wait to hear this. With the ship captured, the U.S. Air Force, Pentagon, and Office of Naval Intelligence were notified. Through the night, a special team of technicians had shut down and disassembled the sphere. Early the next morning on November 6, 1989, construction equipment and trucks were brought into the swamp. The UFO parts were transported to a secret facility in Canada, Ontario. So something that I forgot to mention is that CARP, Ontario, right, located 30 kilometers um, southwest of Ottawa, had a declassified underground bunker base, the Diefenbaker base, where it was, um, if ever there was going to be like a nuclear assault, that's apparently where um, the important uh, Canadian officials were supposed to end up. But as of, uh, it was declassified and sort of exists kind of as an underground base unused. Um, so there's going to be a reference to that later on too. Something to keep in mind. So to continue, the humanoids were packed in ice and sent to an isolation chamber at the University of Ottawa. CIA physiologists performed the autopsies. The reptilian fetus-headed beings were, cla- were listed as Class One NTEs or non-terrestrial entities. Like others recovered in previous operations, they were muscular, gray-skinned humanoids. The ship was partially reassembled at the underground facility in Canada. And then... Angelo, uh, so I've sort of like cut together um, the best parts of this uh, rambling letter that you can actually find in the show notes if you care. But threatened by recent East-West relations and the revolutionary movement within itself, Red China is preparing for the final ideological war. The aliens have agreed to defend China from the free world's combined <laughs> military and nuclear forces. Using extremely low-frequency signals transmitted at the same wavelength the human brain uses that researchers could subliminally control test subjects, the alien implants utilize the same principles except that the whole unit is sub-miniaturized and contained in the brain. Fortunately, the implants can be detected by magnetic resolution scanning technology. All individuals implanted by the aliens are classified as zombies, and zombies are all caps here. The zombies have been programmed to help overthrow mankind in the near future. When China finishes with Israel, it will invade Europe. At the same time, Chinese-based bacterial weapons will be launched in the Arctic. The winds will carry the disease into Russia and North America. In days, hundreds of millions will be dead. Survivors will have to deal with Chinese aliens and the zombies. So, Angelo, uh, Merry Christmas to everyone involved. Yeah, and when is this, when is this going to happen? So, this was, like, this was reported in, like, 1989, right? Yeah. So. So we're we're a few years uh, a few years removed from this, and nothing's happened unless we don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We could be living in an alternate universe. So, based on the lack of clear evidence and the general paranoid tone of the documents mailed, researchers, um, you know, Mufon Kuforn, uh, mostly Kuforn or Mufon Ontario, largely consider this to be a non-event. And Lightfoot and company uh, declare this case to be closed, most likely a hoax. That would make sense to you, right? Very much so. And this was uh, just to to reiterate, this was also from Guardian. Yes, this was also from someone who named themselves Guardian. So they went from like insane documents in 1989 to a video that certain people hold up in high regard as totally not being a hoax and evidence that there's some sort of craft of unknown origin. 
Well, don't forget that there were also accompanying documents in 1991, which we'll get into in a sec. The 1991 event, uh, a spiritual successor or a sequel to the 1989 event, occurring in almost the same place as the 1989 event did, right? So uh, we've all seen the partial uh, copy of the Guardian video. And if you haven't, we've placed it in the show notes in order for you to watch. So I would suggest at this juncture that you head there and watch it. It's about two minutes in length. So then come back. So yeah, you were disappointed that you couldn't find the full 30-minute video. So I've poked around and I've seen people who have had videotape copies and uh, I haven't been able to find it online, unfortunately. So a couple of things to note during the entirety of the video broadcast on various networks, the object itself actually never moves. Right. So the light at the center of the craft just blinks. Um, unlike the Unsolved Mysteries reenactment, which shows the craft landing, never do we see it actually like move. Right. No, we just see the red flares on the ground and this other thing that sort of looks like it's off the ground, but not even that high up. So the video stuff is a little eerie at first glance, right? So the craft makes no noise. You can hear dogs barking off in the distance. On its surface, super unnerving. Uh, it's almost like visceral to watch, right? Because like it is uh, a home videotape being recorded. So I remember seeing the segment when it aired in uh, originally 1993 on Unsolved Mysteries. And the images did, in fact, stay with me, my friend. Oh, yeah. That stuff always creeped me out when I was a kid. I'll say it over and over again. Uh, video like that, especially grainy and kind of creepy, is kind of freaky to me. I remember seeing uh, the footage of the aliens on a sightings episode once that I think turned out to be that video you made me watch for the now uh, defunct segment we used to have of alien cinema. Oh, it's not defunct. It's just long dormant. Yeah, long dormant. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Which was that a whole alien... uh, I guess, found footage video. I think it came from yeah, that. Yeah, uh, produce. I, I could yeah. be completely conflating memories here. I don't know. But it was, I mean, like... So you're kind of proving the, the fallibility of the human mind here, right? Oh, yeah. The, the human memory, not so good. Now, something not widely mentioned in most of these accounts of the story is how the end of certain copies of the video contain a few images that sort of like complicate the narrative. So the uh, videotape itself is 32 minutes long, mostly. So the first image right after the taping of the saucer is a black and white photo purported to be an alien figure. Um, And they do show that in the Unsolved Mystery segment. It's a black and white thing. I I showed it to you the other day. I'll put a picture up on our socials. But Angela, that's not all. Oh, there's more? In the version of Guardian's video that was sent to Kuforn, the last three frames show a windshield with the wiper blades in an upright position on what seems to be a regular vehicle. Why did the person who created this video leave this one, Angelo? I, I don't know. Like, was it a mistake? It was a, so it was a, like what? Like it was a, uh, like the UFO had windshield wipers? Yes. So MUFON researcher Bob Exler allegedly believes it to be another viewpoint of the craft and part of the mystery. But has any, like, as anyone who's ever owned a video camera in the 1990s can attest to, sometimes when you reuse tapes, the bits of the originally recorded video kind of appear subsequently, right? So some have said that perhaps this was part of Guardian's plans to inform us. But I, on the other hand, tend to believe that someone was just being cheap with their videotape use. So he, he said it to EP instead of SP. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just was like reusing videotapes. Uh, also, what identifying features indicate that this uh, was shot in the area it was shot in? Uh, we don't, I don't talk about the whole entirety of the video, not just the windshield wipers. Uh, you know, we don't have any particularities or, or changes to the media environment that would perhaps suggest that what we're seeing correlates with eyewitness testimony, right? So while Diane Labanek can claim that this has happened in a certain place, what kind of confirmation do we really have? There's not much on the tape because it's all black. No, basically what they have to kind of prove what she said is that they they had seen the video, then they found out about her, they asked her what she saw, and it pretty much was exactly what was on the video. And 
that's what kind of gets me is that it's almost like she knew what was on the video because apparently she explained it perfectly. Well, not perfectly. There's a kind of a a bit of conjecture, which we'll get into once we talk about the the interviews themselves. But um, as I said near the top of the segment, UFO researchers began receiving new sets of Guardian documents in the fall of 1991 and into 1992. And this time they're a bit more elaborate. So to quote further from the 1994 MUFON and Terror newsletter, quote, an envelope with some documents that mention a conspiracy between the Chinese and great aliens that are planning to take over the world arrived first. Then came a Polaroid photograph of a UFO flying across an unidentified road. A while later, a black and white picture of a gray type alien. The fourth in the delivery uh, of the series of deliveries was the package. It contained the VHS videotape with a green label on the cassette, the thumbprint with the word Guardian printed on the label. There were also three playing cards in the package, all with handwritten notes on them, an ace, a king, and a joker. So also a photocopied map showed the gray's landing area, along with notes explaining that the flares in the video were used to help the UFO, which can outmaneuver anything on the planet, fly under the radar, and know where to land. So flares to help a UFO and a blinking light on a UFO, these seem like very terrestrial kind of things. Yeah, if it was a UFO, it wouldn't have need all those lights to see what it's what's happening, especially if it's flying through interstellar space. It really strikes me as odd. And the thing is, is if you basically take away the audio of what you're filming and add like dogs barking in the background, it could be a helicopter. It could be a lot of different things. And uh, you and I are going to have a little fun later kind of surmising what it is. So the 1991 documents themselves are forgeries with the Department of National Defense header. Uh, these documents speak of a large conspiracy, as I was saying, in between the Chinese and the aliens. There's mention of Area 51, um, Carleton University. Some have pointed out that the header was a poor attempt at uh, faking the D&D headers from the MJ-12 documents. And it looks super fake. <sighs> <laughs> this upsets you, right? Because this is supposed to be like a really slam dunk case for Canadian yeah. UFOs. So let's move on to the subsequent investigation that turned up Diane Labanek, right? So a MUFON or a MUFON as our friend Sam and Rob love to call them. So MUFON researcher Bob Exler receives a videotape in February 1992 and he phones up Kufor to discuss the matter, right? So as weather can be sort of unforgiving uh, in Canada, very cold, very snowy, the Kufor folks and Exler agreed to reconvene in the spring to properly investigate the case, right? So let's talk about Bob Exler for a sec. So prior to investigating the gardening case, Exler was knocking around Gulf Breeze, Florida, doing some investigative work uh, on Ed Walters' claims, right? So unsurprisingly, he falls on the side of the Walters' claims and wants to debunk the debunkers. See, I didn't know that about him, so that's uh, another strike against him. Yeah, so he basically holds up the the narrative, and then he gets his friend uh, Bruce McAmey involved, but we'll talk about Bruce in a bit. Let us head forward to the investigation itself, Angelo, shall we? I just wanted to say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I kept pronouncing Exler's name wrong, and I hadn't really realized how to say it until you mentioned it to me. Uh, and I kept seeing it as Oshiaga. So Bob Oshiaga yeah. and uh, the Oshiaga tribe. Uh, no. So on May 10th, Mother's Day, 1992, a number of Canadian UFO investigators from Toronto, so that's about four and a half hours from Ottawa, meet with Exler and his son in West Carlton, just outside of Ottawa, to compare notes and search the area to see what they can find. So they first retreat to Exler's hotel room to compare notes in the video and then uh, take off to find the site. So the Canadians note that Exler has trouble attaching the video camera equipment in his room, even though he claims to be uh, a man of NASA, a very technical man, uh, kind of problematic. So another interesting tidbit is that he took the lead in going to the supposed landing site area indicated in the Guardian documents instead of the locals who presumably have much more practical knowledge of the area, right? It'd be like if I went to your uh, town and I was like, I'm going to show you where this thing is. 
Ufologists always love to go by whatever monikers credentials. they have. Yeah, their credentials. They're big on credentials, right? I said this before. Neil deGrasse Tyson just goes by Neil deGrasse Tyson. He doesn't really care if he's called Dr. Tyson or whatever. He just he just tells it how it is, whatever. But these guys love to hold on to their credentials. So it's always Dr. Bruce McAbee or... Um, I'm uh, Bob Exler. I worked at NASA as this or whatever. And <laughs> right. then it turns out that oftentimes they hold on to these credentials because they're almost always made up. Or they exaggerate what little credentials they have. Uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Bob Lazar. But that is uh, neither here nor there. Oh, so wait, it is out. here. Have you mentioned <laughs> that I asked you today who Bob Exler looks like and I couldn't place him. And you told me he looks like Bob Lazar. And they... Like mid-90s Bob Lazar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Bob and Bob look quite alike. So let's head back to the swamp, shall we? No, oh, I love the swamp. That's where so you find the, swamp uh, The Canadian researchers and Exler and his son uh, spent a, fruit, uh, a fruitless afternoon, you know, kind of like in clearings and things. And they, they at one point are in a swamp and they have to park their vehicles and head out. So they're bogged down by like mosquitoes and like crappy spring weather, including like mud everywhere. As you know, like uh, springtime is very ugly here in Canada. Yeah, it, it smells like poop. So the uh, Toronto contingent kind of gives up and retreats back into town uh, to a restaurant about, uh, you know, uh, let's say like 20 minutes away while Exler and his son continue the search. So up until this point, the Toronto group is very skeptical and joke about, you know, Wexler coming into the restaurant eventually uh, because they leave a note in his windshield to come join them there. Um, so they, they joke that he's going to return and claim that he found the spot. And he actually does that about 30 minutes later. Um, so the group points out that logically Exler should have been unable to find the spot given the fact that he had to spend at least 20 minutes on the road. And then apart from that also had to walk back, um, from the muddy area to their car, leaving them scant few minutes in which to find the place. So Exler says nothing. So what happens next? Uh, Theophanos in the 1994 MUFON newsletter, I'm going to let him do the talking here. Quote, I asked him what he was trying to pull here. He responded by asking, what's wrong with trying to make a buck? I answered, there was nothing wrong with making money as long as we didn't compromise our ethics. Wexler came back with, no matter what or how good the story is, 50% of the people will believe you and 50% won't. All you have to do is care about the 50% that will. It was at that point, recalls Tom, that I decided to back away from the investigation for a while to see what Exler would do. So something to note is that Exler had uh, subsequently been charging 35 bucks USD for a VHS copy of the Guardian videotape alongside um, a, a number of analysis documents, right? So it's certainly a good way to generate a toddy profit. He also, um, based on this and his Gulf Breeze sightings, ends up doing the UFO touring circuit for a while. So uh, at this point, Exler had been a full-time investigator for a few years, um, but I've been unable to figure out how, or like his, apart from the, the convention stuff and apart from the talk circuit stuff, how he's actually like generating income. He's another one of those ones that, always says they're not in it for the money, but that's all he's in it for is he wants to be the one to break a good UFO case. Absolutely. uh, He's desperately looking for one and this tape falls onto his lap and he decides that this is the one, this is what he's going to hang his hat on. And he's going to be able to prove to everyone that UFOs are alien spacecraft or something special. And it's this tape, which it's kind of interesting, like you said. It's it's disconcerting to see this weird thing uh, where you're not quite sure what you're looking at. But if you break it down, it's possible it's nothing special. It's yeah, just because sure. of what it looks like. I, I say this all the time, but I, I often am near an airport where there's an airport nearby here. And if you're looking at, at either a helicopter or an airplane at the right angle, it looks like it's moving in really weird places. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, and we'll kind of, once again, we'll kind of get into that as we talk about conclusions because you keep jumping ahead here, Angelo. I love doing that. I keep you on your toes, Brian. So the next day, so uh, at this point, uh, Wexler, uh, so Lightfoot informs Wexler about Diane Labanek and her 1989 signings. So they make an appointment to go see her the next day. So they don't, they don't in fact reveal that they have a videotape, but uh, as she explains her, uh, the she also has a, an experience in 1991, they walk her through it. And um, so she kind of gives a whole description and it matches up almost identically to what's on the tape. They ask her why she didn't call the cops and she says she didn't think it was that significant. So, but there are a few discrepancies in her details. At one point she describes an insignia and a zigzag pattern that's difficult to see in the Guardian video, um, which was much closer and it did not pick that up either. Now this insignia, like how did so was it in lights or was it just? It was on the ship itself. It was on the ship itself, allegedly. Okay, but uh, so that's that's kind of sounds like she's making something up because if all you're seeing is lights, you're not going to see any detail on the actual craft. Well, especially from like uh, so purportedly about um, uh, a thousand feet out. Yeah, you're not going to see anything but lights. Like, I can hardly see the make of my car from, like, 20 feet away. So another thing to note is that Labanek's husband doesn't seem to care about any of this one bit. So when he's interviewed uh, during the RCMP um, uh, proceedings, he uh, reveals that he was gone during both sightings, uh, declined to walk the area after these sightings occurred, and generally just had a demeanor of nonchalance to it. Didn't really uh, care all that much. Yeah, you know, if, if your wife saw an alien spacecraft, I'd be a little more uh, supportive. Yeah, of course. I'd go out there and make sure it wasn't like thieves or something, right? So while surveying the purported site after the interview laminate, a lot of dubious conclusions are drawn up. Some ground uh, that Wexler claimed had been dug up may have, according to uh, Lightfoot, been done so by skunks looking for grubs, for example. Wexler is without collection canisters and has to borrow some from Lightfoot, so he uses empty uh, film canisters. He also claims several bushes have been hit by radiation when it could very well be that these bushes were crushed during heavy snowfall, as is often the case in Canada, when snow melts and the spring season uh, does its thing. Also, he does not carry any measuring instruments, so even if they've been hit by uh, radiation, then how was he able to sort of uh, pinpoint that, right? So Exler and company also approached the Department of National Defense. So Labanek has mentioned multiple times that she's noticed low-flying helicopters coming by on a regular basis, and it's actually becoming troubling. And this is the basis of a report that's uh, filed later, which we'll talk about a bit. So several investigators then decide to approach uh, the need themselves for a number of issues. Firstly, trying to ascertain if there is helicopter activity in the area as it pertains to the sightings and in general, and then also to authenticate the Guardian videotape as well as the documents along with it, right? So during all this, Exler has been in touch with the production company behind Unsolved Mysteries in order to get them to produce a segment on the 1991 sighting. He believes... And he tells Lightfoot that this will flush Guardian out. But I would conject here, um, you know, uh, that perhaps it would inject interest into the case and therefore allow Exler to move more uh, videotapes. That's exactly why he appears on Unsolved Mysteries. It's it's a nice soapbox for him to talk about this case that he's uh, latched onto and wants to make it his life's work. And uh, it so happens that once, again, I'm going ahead here, so don't get upset with me, Brian, but... Uh, once it happens that it things start unraveling with this case, uh, he uh, he just decides to uh, leave. Yeah, so in 1984, he quits. But that is way far ahead of this, my friend. Um, something that uh, to note, too, is that in his, I think it's in his uh, 1994 departure letter, or in one of the rebuttals, he claims that he's done consulting work for these um, different shows, right? Um, so that means that he probably received some money uh, for some off-camera assistance for all this. You think? 
I can't substantiate it. Like, this is just me suggesting things, but apart from his on-air things, it makes it sound as if he, um, the word consulting is kind of interesting. So during the fall of 1992, right, uh, the producers of Unsolved Mysteries try to get Graham Lightfoot onto the show, and he very reluctantly appears because he doesn't necessarily want to be tied up in all of this either, right, after he sees how Exler has been sort of acting. Yeah, he, especially, the thing that really gets me is how he just wants to make a buck. He literally admits it, even though if asked after in different company, he'll say it's not about that. And that's, what, what's the thing that ufologists say all the time? I'm not in this for the money. This is making things more difficult for me and my family and all that. And I think he says the exact same thing at a certain point uh, in his retirement letter. But this is always the same thing with ufology. It's frustrating because a lot of the people doing the work um, kind of come off this way. Yeah, unfortunately, like it's that very egotistical sort of thing when it comes to ufology, especially with ufolo- ufologists who want to be uh, known for things. Yeah, and I don't see this happening with uh, all the cool skeptics I follow, Brian. <laughs> Sorry, Angelo. I know that you are looking forward to that. I know that's not the case, right? But I mean, like, so for example, like uh, in episode 44, we talked about the Delphos ring, right? And how uh, that family uh, decided to um, monetize uh, what happened to them, which I think is an entirely different kind of uh, thing to happen, right? That was slightly different. Uh, it's it was a different time as well, and it was it, and it was part of a ufology. Uh, it was part of a contest to provide the picture of the best UFO you could, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, Jalen Hynek was part of that. Yes. Now th- this is different. This is a guy trying to make a career out of becoming somebody who can expose UFO cases and show some sort of evidence. And uh, 30 years later, uh, his is not a name that comes up often when it comes to UFOs. No. So uh, who else makes an appearance during the Unsolved Mystery segment but our friend, UFO researcher, Bruce Maccabee. So uh, Maccabee was a member of NICAP in the 1970s until his demise in the early 80s. He's a member of UFON. He is a proponent of the MJ-12 documents even after they've been proven largely false. Yeah, he's one of those... uh grumpy old men that likes to really get upset about things when um let's say when you disagree with them have you ever seen like robert hastings lose it he he reminds me of him as well that's a really good comparison actually so uh maccabee also believes ed walters in the gulf resaga he writes the forward to walters book and apparently i i'm not sure where uh how much money he gets i read that he got 10 percent of walters's advance um in some places but it, it, in other places a lump sum yeah so he was supposed to write a chapter authenticating the photos and the forward and yeah he in exchange was paid a chunk of walters advance so something to note is that uh, Maccabee also worked with William or Bill Moore in the 1980s on several UFO cases. Moore was instrumental in spreading uh, disinformation and uh, in the late 80s at a MUFON conference revealed how he had been engaged in disinformation, in disinformation activities against Paul Benowitz um, on behalf of the Air Force, right? So that's that's real good company to keep. Yeah, no, these... I don't like these people. Can I, can I make it clear? Like, it's not... They're not people you should be trusting when it comes to any sort of information about anything. And again, no, like, you no. know, I'm, I'm low down on the uh, double density scale of ufology. Um, but uh, even you higher up on that scale, Brian, uh, I think you're in the same camp as me when it comes to trusting people like this. Yeah, very, very little. 
So during this time frame, uh, coming back to the story, Lightfoot and Exler get the name of a local person of interest who is apparently well-versed in ufology and also uh, use the call, uh, call themselves guardian over the years, purge to all of these events. So Lightfoot then receives independent confirmation of this person's interest in UFOs throughout the years uh, by an acquaintance who is not privy to Lightfoot's current investigation. So additionally, another person of interest is the Labanek's nephew, uh, Pavel Farfara. So in October 1990, a local inspector who is photographing a uh, military sale signed on and around the Labanex property, which we'll get into in a sec, uh, meets their nephew. And so the man talked to the inspector about his uh, uncle, Dr. Bill, so the husband, uh, the local dentist. He talks about the army, UFOs, and aliens and peace groups. He recounted how he'd heard about the signs, how the army was involved, and UFOs landing on his aunt's property. So kind of a couple of really interesting kind of things to note. Um, so had he known about these UFOs ahead of time, was he instrumental in both the 1989 and the 1991 things? Um, Mufon Ontario also learns that Farfar owns a pickup truck. And also uh, something to note is that he studied uh, in Ottawa at Carleton University. So he's been around this whole phenomenon. He knows what it is. Yeah. So he has more than a passing kind of uh, knowledge of everything going on here. Now, is he the one who talked about how uh, his aunt had, like, shelves of UFO books in the basement? No. So that was actually a member of the Unsolved Mysteries shooting crew. Okay. Because I remember reading that, and I couldn't remember where uh, it was, but it was in the article by Errol Bruce Knapp, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. So this was all about how um, a member of the shooting crew had noticed that, despite Diane Lamanek saying that she had no interest in UFOs, there were several books on a shelf in the basement. So obviously there's an interest there. Like I, you would know if you had UFO books in your house. Like yeah. They don't just appear. No. Or do they? Yeah, exactly. I Listen, man, I don't know how these things work, right? They're like magnets. So a lot of things come to a head during the month of February 1993. So early on in the month, the Unsolved Mysteries segment airs, leading to great interest in the case. And many different uh, media outlets pick up the stories. Um, so while the Unsolved Mysteries segment is in production, Exeter also contacts the TV show settings and manages to get them on to do a segment of the incident too. During an early uh, February 1993 interview with CJOH, so Ottawa's CTV affiliate, Labnex says that several witnesses also saw the 1991 setting, but cannot come up with the particular names of these people. Yeah, so it's all just a mystery. They're not coming forward with what they need to prove that this actually happened. They still only have only one actual witness who, I guess, like nailed what was on that tape. But who knows if she had... Like, I'm starting to think she saw the tape before it was even sent to Exler. We'll get into that. Uh, in a little bit uh, towards the conclusions, my friend. So in late February 1993, Labnack reports to Exler that her mother had a sighting during the middle of that month and that her husband also saw a craft in the same spot as the August 1991 incident. So Exler seems unmoved and Lightfoot finds out all about this and contacts the producers of Unsolved Mysteries to alert them of this uh, fact. I'm not sure if there's any um, follow-up correspondence between the two. So per the MUFON newsletter, I'm going to quote, later in the February-March issue of UFO Library Magazine, Exler wrote that he had this smoking gun in the prior technical mystery. So during this time he's collecting samples and he uh there are different kinds of like flare um emissions and things like that and he believes that a certain type of uh, emission left on the ground could indicate it's a different kind of flare he now claims that there is evidence of lithium carbonate which is not used in military flares but rather in expensive fireworks displays so we'll return to the pyro stuff in a bit but suffice it to say this probably isn't the smoking gun that we're all thinking it is of course not <laughs> 
it, it makes me crazy when they talk about the smoking gun. They never have it. No, they don't. So during this time, the RCP also launches an investigation into the incident on February 15th. So this is due to the fact that the Labnix have officially filed a complaint with the RCMP alleging harassment due to the number of like low-flying helicopters in the, in the area, which is kind of like the catalyst of how this report gets started. So the MUFON Ontario folks suggest that the family uh, probably did this to also add legitimacy to the case in general. You know, it just reminds me of, of Ted Phillips. You know what Ted Phillips is? He's the one who has like the all the the physical evidence, uh, trace evidence of UFOs, and he always talks about having, um, again, smoking gun evidence, but it never pans out to anything. There's a lot of that. So the RCMP report itself. So uh, side note, something odd to note is that all of the non-RCMP communications, such as the MUFON newsletter, uh, label Diane Labanek's name as L-A-B-A-N-E-K, but the RCMP report lists it as L-E-B-E-N-E-K. So a little bit of a discrepancy there uh, for my OCD self. Why? I mean, wouldn't you just trust Unsolved Mysteries? <laughs> I Either or, my friend. Robert Stack so the- in that voice is the, the authority the trust yeah so the RCMP report conceivably to cover the issue of low-flying helicopters was produced by Constable Dennis DeH. Although somewhat redacted, the RCMP report reveals a few interesting things. One person interviewed revealed that they had found signage near the Labanek property in the last few years. The signs, five square feet um, in size, made of steel, was amateurishly painted in yellow with the phrases Defense Canada, Killing Technology, Test Area. So uh, what I was talking about before about the Labanek's nephew. Um, so the inspector at the time was out there photographing a lot of these like different um uh, signs that are kind of just on the property that they uh, claim ignorance on. So uh, <laughs> these signs are in black paint with a hand-drawn picture of a tank and an airwolf-type helicopter at the bottom of the sign. It's noted that the lettering on the sign resembles that of the correspondence previously sent out by Guardian. Also worth noting is that this unnamed individual also found signs in the general area in 1991, 1992, including one where nuclear was spelled N-U-C-L-E-E-R. But the RCMP was able to recover those signs. They were, however, able to locate several others on the property. So this is more and more turning out that there's people that just want attention here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And one there's also come, well, like one in order to like present the case and say uh, this case is has evidence and it's going to be the biggest UFO case ever. And one as somebody who has seen this UFO and kind of wants to gain notoriety as the one that actually saw this thing. Right. So one of the characters, in, well, you know what, we'll save that for later. But so I'm going to continue reading. Uh, so the report further indicates that several neighbors in the area agreed that helicopters did fly around on a regular basis, but they kept uh, at the minimum required uh, 500 foot distance from the ground and nothing seems to be out of the ordinary. So the RCMP officer writing the report does acknowledge that Canadian Armed Forces do in fact practice nighttime exercises in the area on a regular basis and may sometimes land on local residence fields and that sometimes helicopters belonging to the U.S. military travel towards the area, most likely from a base in Drum, New York in order to participate in similar maneuvers, though U.S. authorities may never admit this officially. These maneuvers are meant, allegedly, to share best practices and proper cross-chaining. So, helicopters sometimes land on our land. Correct. Huh. Uh, yeah, I know. And, <laughs> During the night. And then military exercises sometimes use flares. Huh. Yes. I know. Huh. So the RCMP report further indicates that they further believe the object to be a landed helicopter due to the characteristics of the... Remember that light I was talking about that flashes really quickly? Yeah. Um, so they believe perhaps the flashing is due to it being near a rotor, creating a choppy motion that would also explain the blinking nature of the light. So uh, the RCMP... Uh, 
officer visits some hangars and shows the pilots the video in question, and it's almost universally agreed upon that it was, in fact, a helicopter. So the report also gets into the debate behind the stronium. So it's, that's the ingredient discharge where flares are set off. Someone who, uh, because this is redacted, I can't tell you uh, for real if, if it's him or not, but it's strongly believed to be Exler. So claims that since no stronium was found on site, that therefore it couldn't have been routine flares. Subsequent examinations uh, and explanations from RCMP folks in the chemical division uh, explain that strontium can disappear quickly due to natural elements such as wind, water, etc., etc. So I just there's that and the fact that experts like pilots and and people that are around helicopters clearly say that it's highly likely that it's a helicopter. Meanwhile, Bruce McAbee, NASA expert in uh, video photography and understanding things that are all things digital, can't figure out that it's a helicopter and thinks it's a, a flying a flying saucer. <laughs> yes, that's right. Also to note from the report is that an individual contacted the RCMP and gave them the name of someone they believe to be the actual perpetrator of the hoax. So Mac, uh, Mufon actually outs this person. And I was doing some digging around. So his name is Bobby Charlevoix. And apparently he was the one who had been going around town calling himself Guardian. And is he still around? Have people found him and spoken to him? Have they checked his fingerprint? I found. So they tried to. Uh, so <laughs> they tried to hand him some physical evidence, but he uh, refuses to touch it, kind of interestingly enough. Huh. Smart. So I found uh, a post from August 15th, 2005, from the Unexplained Mysteries forums. Okay. User J.A. Saris. Are you ready for this, Angelo? Oh, I'm ready. So this is uh, someone posted a link to the Carp UFO. And then, so this is the response they give. Holy crap. Can I tell you about this one? When this happened, I lived in a small town called El Monte, about 12 miles down the road from Carp. Now it's all farmland around there and everyone knows everyone's business. I remember first hearing about the UFO landing and I was in high school and everyone was talking about it. And there was a guy named Bobby Charlebois who had filmed it. Now, as soon as we heard that, we were all kind of skeptical. Bobby was a UFO nut and always talking about stuff. And so for him to have filmed it, well, it had to be a hoax. But like everyone in town, we tune into Un- Unsolved Mysteries when they show the video. And it was taken in West Carlton, which is closer to El Monte than Carp. Uh, and then they say, Google the locations if you want under El Monte, et cetera, et cetera, and brackets. And we saw the woman who claimed to have the UFO land in her yard was Bobby Charlevoix's aunt. And we knew right away it was a hoax. But he never admitted to it right away anyways. But when I came back to the area about 10 years ago, so this was about 1995, and was talking to some friends, one of them, Bobby's first cousin, I was told Bobby had come out and admitted it all that this was a hoax. Not a great one at that, and briefly put a small corner of the uh, earth on the map. Okay, so Bobby Charlebois is Dan Lamanek's nephew? Uh, allegedly, according to this random uh, forum posting, I haven't found any other corroborating evidence. Though. Well, look, a random forum posting. Come on, it, it's it's, it's got to be. It. It's just as strong as the evidence. Uh, what's his name? Bob Odenkirk? No, not Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> that Bob Exler has uh, in his pocket. Let's skip ahead to post encounter, post all of this stuff. Right. Um, also, something to note is that in the interim, Bob Exler locates another woman who claims to have actually been on the Guardian UFO. Um, sometime it. later yes yes okay so she comes up and then she passes uh two different polygraph tests um and as you and i know both know polygraph tests aren't a true measure of anything really no they're infallible 
So uh, what happens is that Bruce McAbee gets confronted um, at one point because he gets asked if he's used any of the Furar funds in order um, to help this case. And he says no, but Bob Exler has admitted that he had received a $1,000 check to pay for the polygraph test. So kind of like this weird kind of internal uh, struggle once again. Um, I'm not really going to talk about this woman all too much because apart from her story, nothing kind of matches up. And also they try to tie in the windshield wiper view uh, to her encounter story. Yeah, it's, it makes me think like a spaceship from the Jetsons. Yeah, almost at this point, right? So someone's after um, Exler's appearance on his own mysteries and sightings. Exler goes into uh, the BBC One radio studios in October 1993 and talks about his past and various stories. And basically, he kind of apes Bob Lazar's narratives and the way that he, too, saw a non-Earth tech who's privy to all these different things. The story seems rather similar to Lazar's, too. So I've included an interview in the show notes with him from two years ago, from 20, 2017, that kind of explains some of his more uh, technical um, exploits as well as what he had seen. I love it how all these low-level uh, NASA guys or maybe like NASA subcontractors always uh, come out and talk about these crazy stories from NASA. Uh, it, it reminds me of, uh, we, we both recently watched Behind the Curve and the guy who started the whole flat earth thing was a, a, a perhaps ex-NASA employee who was told by astronauts that the earth is flat. So these weird NASA guys always come out with the craziest things. But they're usually not true. No. Uh, so, Exler also claims that MEC spent $150,000 trying to replicate the sound environment in the video because one of the biggest claims is that this craft makes no noise because all you hear in the background are barking dogs, right? So, I've managed to locate some correspondences between Exler and several of the Canadian UFO investigators that illuminate where this figure comes from. So, one of these Canadian investigators contacted the producers in 1984 after the segment aired and found that the figure quoted was for the actual entire budget of the segment, not for the sound. So they didn't try very hard. Like, our budget for sound is better. Right. So, uh, I... (laughs) Okay, so um, another piece uh, of rebuttal from the Exler uh, Maccabee camp... um, it reads as follows. Another issue associated with the helicopter hypothesis and the rotation of the rotor assembly involves the analysis of the auto track from the Guardian videotape. The RCMP investigation revealed that a sound could be heard on the tape that is consistent with the sound of rotating chopper blades. I retain the services of an acoustical physicist to conduct an audio analysis. One of several steps involved in the analysis required dubbing the auto track from the Guardian videotape onto a digital audio tape recording. The sound attributed to the helicopter hypothesis was not on the debt and therefore could only be attributed to video noise associated associated with a bright burst of light coming from the blue strobe the video noise need not be a product of the audio track in order to be audio in order to be audible so angela let's talk about sound for a sec shall we yeah let's do this so a typical consumer grade ca- uh, video camera for the 1990s is far from the uh, like it doesn't have the best microphone in the world right no your your tiny little iphone has more uh has a better microphone also, you can't suddenly dub something off of something else and then have the absence of sound. That's not how this works. No, it's like he's doing like reverse EVPs. I tried to wrap my brain around all of this a number of times. And yes, okay, video noise exists. That's definitely a thing. But to the degree to which you can hide the sound of rotor blades, I am not buying it. Unless you EQ everything out, in which case it's an unnatural sounding kind of thing. Okay, so my explanation for this is that at the time he was saying this, he... He understood that if he started talking like this, most people would kind of just nod their heads. 
uh, it's not the same time period. Now, you can't get away with this type of stuff anymore. And uh, he would not survive in the current world of ufology talking like this and just basically making things up and spewing technobabble as it was back then. Whereas now there's people who actually understand how things work and he would not get away with it. Like, look, it took you, what, three seconds to figure out he was making this up? I mean, logically speaking, you like I was saying, like, you can reduce noise and video noise, but you can't drum out entire bits of sound no. unless you EQ it or, or, you know, uh, to such a degree that it does not sound like anything at all. You can only go so far with the recording. If it's not a good recording, you're not going to be able to uh, fix too much. Also, something to note is that we're not even sure if the audio and the video tracks are one and the same. They're probably not. Because it's like he put in the dog sound there. It's it's really, I think that's what makes the video so disconcerting, is that the audio doesn't really sync up with what you're seeing. It's sort of like it's it's dubbed from something else. Yeah, I, yeah. There's a lot here, right? So I feel like the case involves the sort of infighting in between factions uh, that a lot of these like UFO reporting organizations are known for. Right? Like this is classic like, UFO, like UFO, just like mudslinging almost. You see this in ufology all the time with people like uh, following Stephen Greer or following to the Stars Academy or, or following or, or David Icke if you're really on the really extreme end or. Uh, somebody a little more uh, down to earth, like, uh, no pun intended, like uh, Leslie Kane, or uh, there's there's a lot of people out there, different camps, and, you know, there's even this, even within skeptics, there are like different types of skeptics, right? So in ufology, though, it really seems like people kind of latch on to certain things, like uh, the MJ-12 documents, right? There's uh, respected ufologists, uh, and I, I guess I use that word lightly, but like that still think that's a real thing. Right. Well, I mean, like uh, recent UFO retiree Stan Friedman still um, stands by them and a lot of his other work stands up. It's just in this case, I think that like it was too late to back down. So a lot of people are involved in the story could have conceivably participated in the creation and perpetuation of such a hoax, right? Including the Lavinex nephew, um, their other nephew, apparently, allegedly, Bobby Charlevoix. Um, this is kind of significant too, right? So given the narrative thread, my logical conclusion would be to discount the entire thing as a hoax. One of the reasons why um, is you can't weigh the video and the subsequent documentation, including the Red China and Alien Cooperation in silos. You have to view them in concert. One does not simply exist without the other. And as such, you have to err on the side of believing this to be a total fabrication. There are a number of contenders who may have worked independently or together to create and perpetuate this hoax. It certainly seems plausible, right? Very, like, it's plausible that it's a hoax. Like, that's almost 100%. Especially like, you know, they say, oh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But when the baby's like surrounded by uh, fake alien documents, then you kind of have to throw everything out together. We're going to head and li a link to one of the scanned documents. Uh, it's got like the Mason symbol. It's got all kinds of great uh, nutty stuff going on in there. It really does seem like a, a kid in high school came up with a lot of this. Right. And it does too, right? And what I, so I kind of want to lay a, a kind of like narrative out here. And obviously, this is uh, Asterix conjecture, right? So, but I feel like uh, May 1992 wasn't the first time that Exler had gone to Ottawa. Okay. 
due to the fact that he seems to know his way around these back roads and country roads, he uh, knows to go uh, kind of prod and uh, Lightfoot brings him to die in Labanek. Labanek then describes perfectly what the contents of a, a UFO video look like. So I do believe that um, there were local participants and then extra saw chance in order to sort of carry this out into the mainstream. And make him make his uh, name for himself in uh, ufology. Yeah, that that actually makes a lot of sense. And generate some revenue. Yeah, you got to make a buck. Like, once again, I had to say asterisks like this is conjecture. I can't necessarily prove all this, but the narrative and the logical threats to me would suggest that this happened with uh, local and uh, non-local players, right? Well, Brian, you've put it in podcast form, so that makes it true. I just feel like a number of people were involved uh, for different reasons, uh, you know, for, you know, attention-seeking reasons um, or whatever, to have a laugh, right? I think that the person that made the video and went through the trouble of sending it to somebody was having a laugh. Maybe. So, okay, what if he did meet uh, Bob uh, Eschler, Exler? What if he did? Exler. What if he did meet Bob Exler when he came down to this earlier auto trip and said, "Let me totally mess with this guy." And he went through the t- trouble of typing up like the the t- I love in the Unsolved Mysteries video you see the person like carefully typing up Guardian and putting the fingerprint on this thing. It was pretty fun to see that it's like sort of uh, weird recluse esque. And he sends it off to uh, Bob Exler, who kind of loses his mind over it and really wants to believe. And when he realizes it's sort of a, a fake, he decides to still run with it. So that's an alternative uh, narrative that I could agree with the idea that he uh, was an unknowing participant, perhaps, right? Because we're not sure of his culpability at this point necessarily either, right? No. I, well, I mean, at a certain point, he probably figured out it wasn't real, but he still kept going with it. Right. What was that quote uh, that 50% of people who believe you, that's who you need to concentrate on? Yeah, exactly. What's wrong with, what's, sorry, what's wrong with trying to make a buck, too? Yeah, yeah. All that, uh, he convinced himself to believe in it. So he actually refutes a number of different things in the um, um, Move On Ontario uh, kind of expose, but he never brings these parts up and never contradicts these parts, which I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, the, it's it's all, it's such a fun case to think about because it is creepy, it is interesting, there's a video, there's a whole story about it, but when you kind of break it down like you've done over the last few days of researching it, you kind of realize there's nowhere to go but realize that it's a hoax. So also something to note, I forgot to mention, is that the Labanek's nephew, the non-Charlebois one, uh, what's his name? Uh, Pavel. Yeah, Pavel also owns a pickup truck, which has similar dimensions to sort of like the lit up parts um, in the video. So perhaps they use the pickup truck in order to uh, stage these lights. Does this uh, pickup truck, does this pickup truck have windshield wipers? Uh, most likely yes my friend mm, there we go mystery solved. so with that so with that we're bringing uh one of canada's most infamous uh, cases to a close i feel like we have uh teetered on the edge of solving it i think we have you did a lot of really good work this week on it and as you noticed by looking at your uh, device uh, we've run long on this paranormal segment but we really wanted to dig into this case uh, we're going to try to do more of these in-depth reviews on certain cases in the future it was a lot of fun i know brian had a lot of fun uh researching this i did and also it allowed me to uh because a lot of this was happening in real time in the 1990s so there are a lot of different random archives that exist of like um uh, email groups and usenet groups um kind of talking back and forth as well as like some of the correspondences from bruce mcabee from wexler from uh like all these different mufon canada people 
Angelo, I feel like this is a good logical point to end episode 97 of the Double Density Podcast. What do you think? Yeah, we're uh, only a few away from 100. That's right. That, actually, I didn't realize that. That's true. Uh, so people can find us online in a couple of different places. You can head over to Twitter, double underscore density, Instagram, double density podcast. I'm going to try and put up a couple more pictures this week. Also, double density.net. Click on the contact button. Let us know what you think about the carp guardian case. We'd be interested in hearing what you think about Canada's greatest UFO hoax. Uh, any last words? You should put up a picture of that uh, alien. I'm planning on it, my friend. Yeah. I'm definitely going to plan it. Uh, I look I, I again I always wonder about ufologists they seem to fight a lot and not agree on anything this is definitely a case of that though yep this is definitely also a case of believing that the Canadians were right we usually are yeah <laughs> <laughs> certainly Angelo this is it for episode 97 of the Double Density Podcast you can tune in next week as we head south and talk to the ghosts of the Civil War my friend I'll see you there oh see you there see you there